Welcome to Bank Invest Insights, a podcast series designed for institutional investors and those curious to know more about asset management strategies and industry trends. We're coming to you from the friendly confines of the Danish capital, Copenhagen. My name is Brett Chappell, and with me today is Soren Bertelsen, CFA. Soren is Chief Portfolio Manager for one of Bank Invest's flagship investment funds, Emerging Markets Corporate Debt. He's a 30-year-plus veteran of the industry and a fixture at Bank Invest since the year 2000. He is here to share some of his thoughts about that strategy today. Soren, welcome. Yeah, hi, Brett. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, I'm the Chief Portfolio Manager for the Emerging Market Corporate Debt Strategy at Bank Invest, and we have been uh, running this portfolio uh, strategy since uh, 2009. The, uh, the strategy really originated back in 2001 when we launched the first emerging market uh, debt, which was a mix of uh, sovereign and corporate debt. At the time, uh, I think the corporate debt uh, market was really only around $100 billion, and um, this has grown uh, by, oh, I guess, uh, 20-fold, also to $2 trillion uh, market. $2 trillion, wow. Well, at the beginning, um, it was Latin American credits, and and uh, that that was in 2001, just after the Asian uh, financial crisis, and uh, so there were very few uh, Asian uh, issuers uh, in the market, uh, which was not in, in distress. Also, this was before um, the issuers from Eastern Europe, uh, Middle East, and Africa really started using uh, dollar bonds uh, as a as a funding uh, tool. Uh, but that has changed significantly. So now I think Latin America is, is only about a quarter of the investment uh, universe. So now it's a very broad uh, investment universe of uh, more than 60 different uh, countries represented by, by the companies. And it's it's almost 900 different issuers um, in, in, the, in the benchmark. So it's, it's a very broad um, investment universe. I think you're you're interesting on an interesting point. We call it emerging markets, uh, and but of course, if you're talking about some Asian issuers or, or European issuers, um, would you refer to them as emerging? What do you think is perhaps the proper epithet for them? Because maybe a lot of people perceive uh, emerging markets as you know uh, Venezuelan uh, petroleum bonds or things like that. So what 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 would you how would you define it perhaps, if I may? I mean, interestingly, on the sovereign side, it's um, defined as a developing country, um, but in uh, on the corporate side, it's more of a geographical uh, definition. So that means that it, it includes all the countries in Asia, ex-Japan, uh, everything in uh, Middle East, just to, to, to name two areas, where you also find very developed countries, uh, South Korea, Singapore and Hong Kong, uh, very few people would consider them developing. And uh, likewise, in uh, some of the Middle Eastern countries uh, like Dubai, uh, so we have very uh, wealthy nations uh, and very uh, stable nations uh, as well. And this means uh, that the uh, composition of a high yield and investment grade is somewhat different than from uh, the sovereign debt side. So that the around two-thirds, more than two-thirds of, of the uh, benchmark is, is uh, investment grade and therefore uh, somewhat more stable um, than um, than the EM sovereign did. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, you talk about 900 issuers and 
you know, because the investment universe is rather diverse compared to the more traditional investment grade investment strategies in Western companies. How do you narrow it down? Because it, it is it is a difficult uh, way of doing that. Yes, you're right. Um, and it and it goes across um, both very different uh, rating categories and um, uh, you know, macro risks. Uh, so the starting point really is the macro analysis to understand which countries are simply too weak to invest because even the strongest company in in, in a very weak country um, is not very safe at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we use uh, ratings um, and we use uh, stock prices and accounting data to also narrow down the number of issues that we find relevant. So the criteria that we specifically uh, zoom in on uh, when we do the investment uh, analysis, um, they include a historic uh, track record uh, in both in terms of profitability, uh, but also on uh, corporate governance and uh, what is their in- industry position. We tend to much prefer the uh, number one or two in a, in a certain industry. And also, I think the public uh, listing is um, very important uh, in that ensures a, a very good disclosure level uh, so we can follow the companies that we invest in. That's great. So just to, to reiterate, some of the, the things that you look at then when you're doing this analysis are the track record, uh, the position within the industry as a leader, uh, you know, public listing to make sure that there's good disclosure. And uh, you mentioned also, you know, cash flow and uh, the macro picture, but and corporate governance. But what sort of... Um, how do you, in terms of the corporate governance, you know, especially with such a large focus on ESG, um, how do you tackle this risk factor when you're concerned? Because there must be concerns about corporate governance. Yeah, one of the issues is, of course, that uh, the uh, possibility of enforcing your your legal rights is can be very different from from say the U.S. or, or Western Europe. So how uh, the uh, controlling shareholders um, have been have been and are behaving is is very important. So I would say um, the most important one uh, is to see what how they have tackled difficult situations in the past. Typically, the companies that we invest in they have a very long track record, going back typically uh, to some kind of financial crisis. Crisis we have seen crisis uh, in most um, EM countries. If you go back uh, 10, 20 years, so if you uh, see how they behave during this period, that will probably tell you what you what to to expect in the future. Um, so how they how they uh, treat minority shareholders uh, as they are listed is is a very good indicator. And then of course uh, there are also ESG rating agencies that monitor uh, the companies on on the corporate governance side, but they tend to be more mechanical uh, and maybe not the best uh, indicator of corporate governance as we see it. Okay, perfect. Thank you for that. I, I'm curious to know, though, I mean, obviously, when you focus on the macro situations you talked and you were describing, you also have your own convictions in terms of asset allocation and portfolio construction. Now, you've briefly mentioned, you know, the country analysis in which you want to make sure that you have the legal framework in place to protect but you know what are the other sort of convictions that you have, and I don't want you to reveal your secret sauce because I know with you know 20 years under your belt as a successful portfolio manager, you know you don't want to tell exactly all your secrets how you how you do it. 
but you know, when you make these investment decisions, uh, what are some of the long-term convictions that are important for you? Well, we have um, just over a handful, five to ten uh, convictions, longer-term convictions that we would not like to invest against. And uh, an example of a conviction could be the energy transition uh, and its impact on, let's say, certain commodities. So, for example, we expect um, continued uh, demand for copper, lithium, and and other uh, materials and metals used in the energy transition. Um, and that could support both companies um, uh, who are mining these metals, but it could also uh, strengthen the economics of some countries uh, which are a heavy exporter of these commodities. And on the other hand, you we expect you know slowing demand for coal, uh, and the risks associated both it, both to the stranded assets, uh, but also the difficulty that they may face in the future of, of refinancing their bonds and loans. Yeah, I think those are risks that uh, you're absolutely right with the current interest rate environment being what it is, that uh, you know people might be concerned about the refinancing aspect for the loans. And when we say that it is, of course, emerging markets corporate debt is the name of the strategy, um, you know, what percentage of your investments are in bonds? I think that's an important element to uh, to point out. Can you can you share that with us? Well, yes, uh, the fund essentially invests 100 percent in uh, dollar um, denominated bonds. So um, it's and then it's hedged into the different share classes that uh, the investor chooses. Perfect. So the, 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 there's no real derivative uh, usage in this. Uh, so no, you know, CDS is. Uh, taking large positions uh, in that front. That's correct. We do not find the liquidity and the pricing of, of the de- derivatives and the CDSs in this market to be liquid um, enough to, to take the risks. That's that's very fair. Now, you know, when I, whenever I come over to visit uh, you guys, I, I always enjoy speaking with your analysts. You have some, you know, foreign analysts, so I can, uh, not everybody speaks Danish uh, as, as well as you do, Soren. Uh, and when you say when you do your analysis, is it more qualitative or quantitative? I would say that uh, the analysis is definitely more uh, qualitative because uh, the starting point being uh, the country analysis, uh, that would include something like uh, the political landscape, the demographics, uh, maybe structural economic issues, uh, which can be hard to, to quantify. And, uh, and likewise, on the corporate side, uh, we mentioned uh, corporate governance, but also a level of disclosure, uh, track record, etc. That requires uh, mostly um, um, qualitative analysis. But having said that, we have increased the use of quantitative analysis uh, to to screen the universe, um, and we so we screen to monitor and highlight potential negative uh, ne- negative developments. We monitor, for example, the trends in equity prices uh, and also um, the um, accounting data to uh, to monitor if there are uh, some indications uh, of fraud. Yeah. And it's really to just to make it's become easier now with the uh, access um, to to better quality data in in the, the last years. Perfect. Now. You know, in terms of an investment horizon, uh, we often say that uh, we as slow money have a little longer term investment horizon than an investment bank, you know, and we're obviously focusing now on primarily institutional asset classes. 
what sort of investment horizon would you reckon an investor to place in the strategy? I mean, it's it's not like in and out day trading. That's quite clear. So what, what sort of thoughts would you have on that? Well, I, I think there's two aspects here. The investment horizons uh, in the fund that we have uh, generally historically have been two to uh, two and a half years, the average right. holding period. And that has to do with the uh, the cost of trading and as we would like to to minimize uh, the cost of trading and make sure that we, uh, we we get good prices and do not affect uh, the market too much and uh, i say likewise an investor in uh, going into this investment horizon in this investment area should probably have uh, a minimum uh, investment horizon of two to three years perfect thank you so much now, the, obviously, the corporate bonds, uh, as part of the debt aspect of we're speaking, are becoming an increasingly attractive asset class. And in some houses, there is pressure to increase assets under management to compete with the larger houses. Now, you have over two decades of experience and performance in this strategy. What would be like the soft limit to assets under management, you know, sort of the numbers to maintain the same level of risk-adjusted returns that your clients have come to expect from you? I think it's tempting to say that since the market has grown from 100 billion to 2 trillion, that uh, it's it's easy just to increase uh, AUM in uh, asset under management in this yeah. area. Sure. However, we see that uh, from the bottom up uh, managing the portfolio, and we see that many of the attractive bonds, bond issues, they are around 300 million in size. And uh, since we prefer not to have more than around 3% of any bond issue to make sure that we can trade without uh, too much cost uh, of the trading. Um, And on the other hand, we also prefer to have no more than 200 issuers uh, in the portfolio. So where that Mm -hmm. we are able to to monitor the portfolio portfolio closely. That, That Brings us to a, a a soft limit of around two and a half to three billion dollars. Uh, above this limit, you, either you have uh, a more limited investment universe because the three hundred million dollars um, is difficult to invest in, or your cost of trading starts to increase. Yeah, that's uh, that's something I know quite a lot about, having a, a long experience in with the uh, the front office activity. Now, we've, uh, I think one of the topics we touched about it earlier, we talked about uh, governance. The the ESG aspects uh, of this is uh, a lot of people's focus on this because of what often gets hit in the headlines. And, uh, you know, we're not going to talk about greenwashing at, at this point. But I mean, I think the question I wanted to ask you is when they have these preconceived ideas about the risks from ESG to, to corruption, to social dumping, how do you monitor these and screen for these? You've spoken a little bit about this. But can you walk me through the sustainable investment process? Because I know from working at Bank Invest that this is very much a top-down approach coming from our, our CEO, Lars Bobatram, that uh, we have to be on top of this and have been since we signed in 2007. Can you can you share a little insight into that? Yes, yes, of course. I think in the past it was difficult to monitor a large uh, amount of issuers um, on the ESG front. So how how they were they really performing? Were there any uh, ESG these uh, issuers um, or themes that we should monitor? And that was uh, the case globally, but especially in emerging markets where where coverage was not good. Uh, from from the ESG research providers, but that has increased significantly. Um, yeah. So apart from our own analysis, uh, 
and meetings with with company management and questions and, and dialogues uh, back and forth. Uh, we also note that uh, MSCI ESG and Sustainalytics, which are two uh, ESG research providers, they now cover uh, over 97% of the benchmark that we use. Okay, uh, I so was that not aware of that. Indica- wow. So yeah, that, that, that indicates that it's actually a very large share that that, that uh, is able to to cover on um, on let's say a, a quantitative um, way. Okay, that's that's very very interesting. I mean, because uh, we know that uh, mentioned earlier that Denmark was the in the first Danish uh, bank invest was the first Danish asset manager to sign the principle for responsible investments. And we also joined the Net Zero uh, you know, Asset Manager Initiative in 2021, which obviously can put some constraints um, for freedom of movement, uh, perhaps for some of the investments. So Bankinvest was the first Danish asset manager to sign the principles for responsible investment and also joined the Net Zero Asset Manager Initiative back in 2021. How active are you in the bottom-up approach? Are you in dialogue with issuers and syndicate desks? And have I maybe missed out on anything on that front? Yeah, well, first I would like to mention that uh, we were the first to launch an ESG fund in emerging market uh, corporate debt. And that was all the way back to 2007. So uh, at a time when data was not ready uh, available for for ESG. And uh, so we have been used to having this uh, dialogue and uh, it's, it's still important, even if we have uh, more research from the ESG research providers, as we want to better understand how management work with the ESG issues. Okay. There was one example with, with an Indian company I met with uh, last year, uh, where the chairman said at the end of a presentation that, uh, oh, we also have some ESG slides that our IR department, uh, department prepared. I'm not sure what they mean, but uh, they have to be there. Uh, and then he <laughs> laughed. So that it clearly indicates that maybe um, the ESG efforts should not be taken uh, fully at, at face value, uh, but there has to be some some kind of uh, analysis on top of that. But coming back to your, your point on uh, the, the syndicate desk, I think that uh, this is the, one of the best way to influence uh, management's uh, effort on, on the SD side. And uh, that is when we send feedback on new issues uh, to syndicate desks. We would typically include a ESG risk premium or maybe even a discount if they do better. So we try to quantify uh, the ESG risk into a um, either higher or lower uh, price of uh, a coupon of the new bond. So in this way, we make it very clear that uh, it does have a cost um, if the ESG performance is not very good. Listen, I think this has been a a really good, you know, sort of top level uh, walk around your bottom up approach to to investments. I think, um, you know, we're going to conclude here. Would you have any final thoughts, perhaps, sir, that you would like to share with, uh, with our listeners? Well, maybe just a note on the, let's say, the ESG uh, issues. And um, yeah. you mentioned greenwashing before. I think there's uh, uh, the irony is that uh, EM companies are typically compared and rated relative to, to European US companies, and therefore they tend to get a lower uh, rating. But on the other hand, the potential to improve uh, and have a real impact on, on ESG factors is uh, larger, and uh, the 
willingness and also the ability of many of these companies is is actually there and needs financing. Uh, of course, there are uh, EM companies that are definitely not uh, among the first movers, but I think it's important just to mention that uh, when we provide uh, funding for these companies, many of them are issuing green bonds and are uh, trying to uh, improve the ESG uh, profiles rapidly. We can also see that the average ESG rating of, of the benchmark has been um, gradually improving. So I think uh, the, most EM companies are on the right track. Well, I think that is that is a somewhat positive way to end this. Um, I want to thank you so much. And if I refer to Soren as Sarn, because that's how we pronounce it in uh, in Danish. But of course, in English, it's Soren because you don't have that funny vowel, the O with the slash through it. Um, if you've appreciated this or you have some comments or thoughts for either Cern or myself, my name is Brett Chappell. You are more than welcome to write to us at podcasts at bankinvest.dk podcasts at bankinvest, one word, dot dk. We look forward to uh, hearing from you. But CERN, thank you so much uh, for your time. And uh, to all our listeners, have a very, very nice day.